This is Mona Tanja, president of NCSM, and welcome to Learning with Leaders, the Bold Mathematics Leadership Series. Join me as I sit down and have conversations with emerging and established leaders exploring equity in action. You will hear from bold mathematics leaders as they share their experiences and actions and what they have learned from them. We think these next few minutes will help you consider the bold actions that you can take to focus on equity and support those that you serve. Grab a warm cup of coffee and a journal as we learn together on our mathematics leadership journey. Hello, I'm Mona Tanjeff and welcome to the NCSM podcast, Learning with Leaders. John Sangiovanni and I are the co-hosts for the Bold Mathematics Leadership Series. And to finish up this series, we've invited speakers to sit down with us and discuss what equity means to them and share with us their experiences and stories of leadership actions that support our journey as math leaders. Today we have with us Sunil Singh. Sunil Singh is a longtime educator, author, and storyteller. His current passion is expanding the lens of anti-racist math education and illuminating the rich global narratives found in math history. He is a math program advisor at Amplify and content creator at Mathagon. As well, he is the president of the board of directors of the nonprofit organization called the Human Restoration Project. He is also the author of Pie of Life, The Hidden Happiness of Mathematics, Math Recess, Playful Learning in the Age of Disruption, and a soon-to-be-released book called Chasing Rabbits, A Curious Guide to a Lifetime of Mathematical Wellness. And he is one of our spotlight speakers at the upcoming 53rd Annual Conference in Atlanta in September. So welcome, Sunil. We are so, so glad to have you today. I am so glad to see you. I'm so glad to see John. I mean, it's been a while since we've seen each other in person, but just seeing familiar faces, even through this sort of interface is really good. A nice sort of summer evening here in Toronto. So yes, I'm excited to look forward. This is going to be a fast 20, 25 minutes, I think. Absolutely. So we've been starting off each of these podcasts by asking our speakers, what does equity mean to you? So we'll start with that question. Well, it's, I love the fact you pose it individually to people because, um, you know, we're going to get unique answers based on their own experiences. And for me, and this is literally, it's not even an abstract metaphorical way, um, equi uh, equity is a journey. And I mean that literally because uh, 11 years ago this summer, I actually gave my first workshop ever as a teacher, which was called Searching for Equity. Wow. <laughs> and uh, it was at a at a local university. It was my first workshop ever. Um, you know, it's a big one to start. And that's why title is Searching for Equity, because I don't know anything just yet. I am learning. And it was going into like, you know, math history and, you know, where does math come from? Like, where does it come from? Like, who, who are the, who founded mathematics beyond the people that I read about, the people that you read about? Um, and, you know, 11 years later, I think I would still do that same workshop because I'm still searching for it. And I think it's important the way that you're phrasing the question because to get an equitable definition of equity, you need to allow all the different ideas to sort of come together. And they could be even something like, you know, whether it's closing the achievement gap, that's something also important there. But for me, um, even if you say giving, let's say all kids equal access to high level instruction, that doesn't necessarily mean they're all gonna, that instruction is gonna percolate down to their experience. Mm -hmm. So for equity really means starting with the student and putting everything 
through the student. So if I was to use that metaphor, equity is a journey, maybe as I'm driving or whatever, I have to check the rearview mirror, are the kids still with me? Like, at, where am I going? Are the students still with me? Am I still doing stuff in their best interest? Um, am I addressing things like, you know, the math trauma that they assume they're going to have? And, you know, social emotional learning and all that kind of anti-racist, like all the stuff which has come up in the last, you know, 18 months or so. And that's why I think just keeping it open and let's get all the different definitions in and maybe that becomes our starting point in 2020. Yeah, I, I love that answer. And I love the fact that you picked up on this notion of like there's individual perspectives to equity and, and, and on that question, um, which brings me to a question I have for you. And that is you talked about learning and, and the value of learning from one another, um, the individuality um, and the notion of many ideas coming together, which made me think about our upcoming conference. And I'm, we're excited to have you as a major speaker for NCSM's 53rd annual conference. Um, what is something about the conference that you uh, look forward to? Well, as uh, we sort of talked before we hit record, but I think it's okay to even mention that, you know, because it needs to be said twice, is just to see people again and to see kindred spirits again, to feel like that whatever kind of um, collective mission that we're on, that we're still sort of, you know, sculpting is being done that we're not isolated. Um, and this is a very important uh, sort of emotional psychological boost to come to a conference. And yes, you've got all these amazing speakers, a curated program, but as we know, you know, it's more than just the workshops, it's the hallway conversations, it's, it's even the conversations that happen even in the bathroom or at breakfast, they're always kind of there and then it's that collective sum that you take back home to your districts and that whole sort of invigoration, which you can only get from those in-person conferences. That's what makes us human. That's why I am on this board of directors of the Human Restoration Project. We're trying to restore the humanness, which has been atrophying the last 18 months. Yeah, and that is so well said. I just, I just want to say it again for the listener. <laughs> we need to refine our tribes and get back together and have those social events. And you know, going to sessions is a learning opportunity, but so is that conversation in the hallway. And and just I like you miss seeing our math friends. You said it so well. Two words, well, three words. Refine our tribes. Right. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> our tribes, we have to. You know, it's like a search party. You know, <laughs> okay, everyone meet in Atlanta, okay? Can, can we do that? It almost feels like a pop-up event, although it's not, but we're doing anything we can to, to sort of, you know, get back in terms of, you know, why do we do this? Why do we love this? You know, all the amazing collective work that all of us do together. Um, it only makes sense when we're doing it together. Yeah, I would definitely add the connection, the connection piece. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I like going to conferences, especially the NCTM and NCSM events, because I feel so connected to the, the stories that are being told because you're hearing from your peers. And I, as a, as a math leader, that was where I got a lot of affirmation because sometimes you're, you're on an island in your district. You're the only person who's leading mathematics in your district. And so the affirmations, the, the confirmations that the where you're going 
is the right work or that you know you're using the right resources to to influence those you serve and or that you know you're just influencing change so that the connectedness is so important very important the connectedness and the uh, the other c word which i think ncsm has used in some conference themes or is those courageous conversations which i think can only have when you feel safety of someone's body language or you know in person um i'm not saying you have them like this but there's that extra sort of dimension texture that you know extra couple of minutes you spend with them after a workshop or presentation again to know them a little bit better through the the lens of the presentation and maybe there's a, a discussion that you wouldn't have had otherwise because of that sort of um pop-up intimacy that moment just as you're exiting the doors of wherever you're presenting and they're going one way you're going another way yeah let's maybe you know have coffee those interstitial kind of uh connecting things to workshops is what's been missing yeah. and with them they don't something there's it loses some color and texture and so that's why you know <laughs> coming to atlanta uh sure in terms of all the safety regulations all that um i am confident i know a lot of my colleagues are very confident uh and we feel that um this time and moment is really important to make sure that you know if just things are safe and uh, the guidelines have been met that uh we owe it to each other and to ourselves to be there. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I know Mona has another question for you. And before she says it though, um, she and I worked together so long virtually. And the first time we saw each other in person, she said, you're so much shorter in person. <laughs> I did. Um, so those are the only types of things you get to hear when you're in the same room together. Um, and so, you know, I miss that kind of experience when we are at conferences, but sorry, Mona, you had a question that I imagine was much deeper than that. So please oh, go I on. Do. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm excited about your session. The, the title is Broadening the Lens of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion in Our Math Content and Ped Pedagogy Through History and Storytelling. So I'm at one, I'm gonna be in your session, but give us a sneak peek or a little preview of what we would, what we would take away from your session. So, uh... I actually want to start with the title of my session backwards, because okay. if you look at those two words, history, storytelling, and then sort of, you know, unpack it backwards, um, there's a quote that I use, uh, I've used it in every single presentation keynote that I've done the last 18 months. And it's, um, it's a quote from the Harvard Business Review. So it gives it some authority, but I also like it because it's got like this sort of economy of words. It's very simple. It says, to involve people at the deepest level, you need stories. So what I like about that quote, and no one's gonna refute it. No one's gonna go, yeah, I think there's a deeper way to reach people. So right away, you've got everyone like on board with this sort of pretty, you know, uh, above the shoulders, high level kind of idea, you know, the connecting uh, at a deep level with stories. But then what I'm also gonna say right after is, don't we all want from our students a deep understanding, for ourselves too, by the way, don't we all want a deep understanding of mathematics? We always say that. So if stories are the deepest way to connect with people and we want deep understanding of mathematics, I don't think that's a bridge too far to cross. 
And that's what the, the session is really about, is to first have this sort of agreement about the power of stories. And, and that starts with our own stories. And uh, I have this image of these uh, uh, three rings, Baromian rings, that of course you pull one ring out, the other two rings fall apart. So the three rings are titled the story of mathematics, the story of you as an educator, and the story of your students. All three are important. You take one out, it loses its meaning. And the one that we kind of sometimes maybe miss, um, we always talk about, okay, let's get the story of our students, is what's the story of our own journey in mathematics? Um, you know, especially elementary teachers and educators. Um, I know uh, a couple of math leaders up here in my own province, math leaders who have personal math trauma that they're still coming to grips with because they suffer from the imposter syndrome. They can't believe that I, I'm not, I don't deserve this or I shouldn't be here because I did this. So that is also part of the storytelling, what you're gonna do is the power, what, what do stories do? They, they, they empower us to tell our journey. Um, they also tell the uh, thematic development of mathematics. Um, and I, I forgot to answer this in my the opening question, the equity question, but I'm gonna answer it here because it's so uh, germane. The best way I kind of describe the difference between equality and equity is if you had uh, four loaves of bread and five people, and you asked, uh, how much bread does everybody get? So you have four loaves of people, uh, four and five people, and everyone's going to go four fifths, which is correct. But we never think about what the distribution of that bread's going to be, because what it's going to look like is that four to five people got almost entire loaves, and the fifth person got those bottom shards. Yeah, that's no fun. <laughs> equal amount of bread, but it wasn't equitable. Right. And the equitable way to do this would be with Egyptian fractions to give everybody a half quarter and one twentieth, and if you add them up, you get four fifths. So even that whole idea of Egyptian fraquin, from fraquins, is there <laughs> ping um, that is itself an idea of equity in terms of unit fractions. So I just have found, and this is again, going back to like, you know, uh, it's a journey and I'm still on this journey. And we're fine, I'm, you know, everything I found out of math history, it, it has a cross-section with the social economic situation, the times, sometimes the art literature, it creates a humanness. And so I tell some of the math stories uh, when in my session, I'll be doing that. What I'm gonna do then afterward is I'm gonna remove the human element. And I'm gonna say, how would you feel if I present the exact same math concept without the humans involved, without the cultures, without those references, just the math. Let's compare the two. Which one is gonna sit better with you? Or more importantly, which one do you think is gonna sit better with your students? If going back to the Harvard Business Review quote, you know, the deepest way to reach people is through stories. Awesome. I, I can't wait to go to your session. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Other than that, I mean, you know, some of the things you're talking about makes me think about my, my role as a teacher and that I have a math story myself and that influences the things that happen in my classroom potentially. Um, and I think the other thing though, my story isn't complete. And I think that that's mm. really something that's powerful and sticks that's with very me out. I wanna ask you a question about story, math history and storytelling. Yep. What, what is something about math history or storytelling storytelling that you think would su surprise the average math 
I don't know, student, teacher, yeah. or, or um, math leader for that matter? Well, the one that I, there's a couple uh, that I reference quite a bit, but the one which really, I think, deserves attention, um, especially if you do it at a uh, workshop, because everyone's, you know, people got their laptops open, I'll say, everyone look at your laptop, and I'll say, locate zero. And zero occurs after nine. And then my question to you is, why is that? Because isn't zero supposed to come before one? So I let that sort of just ruminate for a while, like, you know, well, you know, why was it put there? Well, it was put there because it's it's like it's only was delegated to be a placeholder. Now that's its only value that we have given it because we're going to put it arbitrarily after nine, because you know, if we would have put a one, it would have been 10. So zero doesn't have that sort of power. Now, I have a, a good friend, a kindred spirit in Australia named Jonathan Crabtree, who has spent 32 years of his life investigating what happened to zero. And I mean by that is that zero is supposed to be the lowest number, just like you can't have less than zero energy um, or matter in the universe. And zero is supposed to be the lowest number. And positive negatives, like, you know, you would never say an electron with a charge of negative one and a proton, a charge of positive one, you would never say the electron is less than a proton because it's all about magnitudes and it's about yin and yang. And that information um, got lost as it was coming up the Silk Road and eventually landed in a place called the House of Wisdom. And even though we have these amazing Arabic, Arabic Islamic scholars doing amazing work in uh, algebra, al Khwarizmi, Omar Khayyam, um, they just maybe didn't uh, read the chapter on zero being the lowest number. And if you look at even in our own education system, we do a question like two subtract one, maybe in kindergarten, because kids can hold up two fingers, pull down one, but we're not gonna do one subtract two for five, six years. So we create a pathological idea that negative numbers are something weird with them. And when they're, when they're, when they're separated, divorced from that sort of yin yang, then we get the anxiety with negative numbers. And you know, what, what about a kid who lives in the you know, northern part of the US or Minnesota, we have negative temperatures. You know, they know. what question going to be to their parents going, what does minus five mean? <laughs> you know, so for me, that is a very surprising thing that zero um, should have been the lowest number. The number line should have actually been a vertex. So the zero is at the vertex and the positive negatives uh, sort of flesh out like vectors from that. And you can see the symmetry. Again, if you walk uh, five miles west and two miles east and you superimpose on a number line, all of a sudden you've got the number minus five and positive two. And are you going to say the person who walked five miles west walked less? No, you're going to create confusion. And for me, just going back, this is like I should have bought a, a punctuation mark for this answer. Um, <laughs> But uh, I would rather give a kid in uh, senior kindergarten or grade one to think about one subtract two. Let them think about it for a week, these kids. And I bet you they'd come back in their own language how it makes sense to them. That if there's, uh, you know, I've got one muffin and two people, what kind of language can I use that makes sense? And some of the most powerful mathematical ideas can be just done with single digits, right? So yeah. Unfortunately, we sort of parked the negative numbers five, six years later. And, you know, ironically, they could have been done earlier, could have had a nice symmetry with zero, could have accessed math history with Aryabhata, Ramagupta, 
his book, Brahma's, again, all these things are extricated and it's just negative numbers for where they come from. And we, <laughs> math anxiety, math trauma, math boredom, we are surprised when it occurs because circling back, there's no story to it. There's no storyboard. When I so went speaking, Oh, go ahead, Don. No, so I mean, I, I want to say so many things, and I just won't. <laughs> um, but you're right. I work with young students all the time. They understand the idea or the notion of negative numbers and owing people money or things yeah. of that nature, right? But um, just for me, the power of story. Like you just did such a wonderful job of talking about zero. I'm. I can't wait for our listeners to hear the podcast, and I, my encouragement will be to rewind it. Uh, you know, five minutes and just listen to that twice. Um, and I look forward to that <laughs> myself. And, I, and was, I, also I was say, like mentally drawing it as you were talking. I was like, wow. Right. But talking about so many other connections there and, and again, context and connections and understanding. So I'm sorry, Moni, I, Moni, I interrupted you. Oh, no, I was just, I was going to tell a little story, but I know that you guys have probably <laughs> seen this. Um, so I traveled to Europe for my first time, maybe four or five years ago, I went to Paris with my mm. mom and my daughters and my first experience in an elevator, they actually have negative numbers on the elevator. So when you're at zero, you're at, like, you're the first floor, that's zero. And then right. the go up and the floors go down. And I took a picture and I posted it on social media. And I was like, if America did this, we would all understand positive and negative numbers. <laughs> and, um, Somebody said, oh, I see this every time somebody goes to Europe <laughs> for math teachers, because it's true. I mean, we have a society that for some reason, they don't like to do the negative numbers where that's what it, that's what's happening. So anyway, well, it's, it's, it's been part of the history too. Like if you yep. follow like in terms of how negative numbers have been treated by mathematicians, like, you know, it was like, you know, oh, that's voodoo or they don't exist. Um, you know, we're not going to go below zero. Right. Um, so we've actually passed on that anxiety pedagogically. Yep, absolutely. Well, you we've know, denied we've access. Said, yeah, yeah. yeah. We've denied access. We've created artificial oh, barriers. There you right? go. Um, we've done Thank so you, many things that oh, no, I love, I love undermine Very powerful. Success. Denied access. That's exactly it. And, you know, kids don't start mathematics in grade five or six. They start mathematics, again, you know, in, in kindergarten. Um, or sooner. Or sooner, Age right? Two. And, they know what, two cookies versus one, what, but I'm sorry. One of, the things that we, <laughs> one of the things that we do, again, going back to stories, is we don't listen to their stories, even if they're misconceptions about mathematics. Mm -hmm. We just slate clean, you know, just using that slate imagery. With Little House on the Prairie is my favorite show of all time. Had to get that in there. Okay. All right, I'm sorry, but go on. Uh, no, <laughs> I know why hey, we have a kid. I watch. <laughs> I watch all the other shows. Get, but there's something about the. It is aged very well. Okay, that show is aged very well. But we'll talk about it in Atlanta. <laughs> uh, but it's just the fact that I, that kids would be energized by, they could talk in narrative speak, right? Um, I remember I went in and I did. I went to my daughter's class when she was in grade three, and I held up a tetrahedron, and I asked uh, the kids. Okay, I pointed to one of the corners, and I was actually hoping they would say corner, but they said vertex, and I go, "That's fancy, fancy. Can I call it a corner? Because I think it's important to call it a corner first, and then go. You know what? We got another term for that, and use their kind of wink, wink, kind of you know, kids speak kind of stuff. It's vertex." 
we, we the, sometimes some of the terminology, we just pack it on, they start to lose their intuition for it. And I think we all have this intuition for mathematics. We have this romance period for learning, which occurs somewhere in the window of K to three. And I think it was uh, Dewey or Alfred North Whitehead said, if we don't attend to this romance period, that's going to be all for naught. Yeah. yeah. You so, know, we remember our romance period with, of learning. And well, no, and you know, when you think about young students as well, they they conceptualize what a corner is. They've felt those, they've touched those, they've <laughs> interacted with those, right? They probably haven't come across too many vertices. <laughs> the point is that you know, making that connection first um, is, is so much more powerful. Yeah, um, no, it's it, yeah. it just it feels like that. Yeah, okay, I I want to be involved in something called mathematics, and again, it, mathematics should be uh, a mirror for students, like literally a mirror. Who I am is in mathematics. It should be a place of refuge, like in terms of, as opposed to causing anxiety. Like this is what mathematics can do. If it couldn't do this, if it was like, you know, there's some math people and there's some not math people, we're not gonna have this conversation. I don't know, maybe I've taken a different profession or something, but because I so passionately, and I think we all do believe that everyone is entitled to a rich, mathematical experience doesn't mean it's going to be easy and you know i talk about it in my book it's the messy middle uh, brene brown's got a quote that in the middle is where it's messy but it's also where the magic is guess what same thing in mathematics yep. all the magic is in that messy middle that's where all the conversations come from that's exactly right i was just literally saying that today is that for whatever reason somewhere along the line students learn that math is about an answer at the end, where it's not about the answer, it's about all the stuff in the middle. That's where the magic happens and stop having your students erase what they do, <laughs> start over. Like you want, right? You want them, that's that's part of the story piece. That's the storyline. So, I, I mean, I'll just tell you personally, like as a math educator, in the last two years, I've learned more about mathematics looking at it through the lens of a storyline and not just looking at it as a problem right that like you're do like you think about like unit planning and stuff as a teacher it was like okay i'm doing this unit and then i'm doing this unit and then i'm doing this unit but i've learned that it's like there's so many connections and um so the quote from oh. san francisco unified that math is a web not a ladder that whole piece really sent home some ideas for me around thinking about mathematics through this lens of story. So I, I say this because it goes back to where you started that equity is a journey. So is our own journey of learning how to be a storyteller through our content in those pieces. So I, my question for you then is, you know, how do we, how can a math leader get started in this? Or how do, you know, what are things that they can do to grow or advice you'd give them to tap into their, tap into the history or the storytelling so that it would i don't know be more natural for them or something well and this is a question i get i, I think we're in an idea rich time uh this uh, idea of storytelling narrative um, has kind of it's, it's blossoming it's blooming right now and with any emergent idea the resources will you know catch up to it um but what i would suggest um is the safest place to start with a story um, is what's your story 
your story that you would tell kids. Um, and uh, when Joe Bowler wrote the forward for my book, she actually titled her forward for the book, What is Your Story? Because she saw this book as really as a one big story filled with a lot of smaller stories. So the first thing to do in terms of, okay, I would love to bring more math history and narrative in, that's great. Um, and I would give you, and I'll share those resources and ideas, but the first thing I would do is to have a relatively unvarnished conversation about what your story is and tell it to students. Maybe you've never had an opportunity, or maybe you feel that, you know, you want to uh, not share that sort of like moment of where, you know, I wasn't always the best math student or I struggled. Well, that actually has a lot of currency now, right? We've all struggled with mathematical ideas. In fact, I'll take you, I'll give it one better. I look forward to mathematics, which is going to cause me to struggle. That to me, again, it goes to the messy middle, right? I feel alive. I feel, you know, I feel like I'm part of the thematic development of mathematics because somebody was looking down and watched everyone do mathematics for the last 1,000 years. Most of it is about slow failure. That's, that's the narrative. And that's the narrative I'm going to sign up for, that I've signed up for. And it would also disarm a lot of these teachers, especially elementary teachers, and go, you know what? That, my story is valuable? Absolutely. And it's very important you share all of it with your students because then that gives them a safe place to do so as well. So I would say start with your own stories and then maybe slowly encourage individual stories of students, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, how they've felt about mathematics. And it, even if they say, I hate mathematics or it makes me feel like this, get those conversations out, create a place of trust. You know, that's so important, of course, in the teaching aspect. But in terms of resources, um, even if you're not a high school teacher, I would strongly recommend the book Crest of the Peacock, um, which is, I think, now it's third edition. It's like 500 pages. But it's really like, it's like Raiders of the Lost Ark in terms of all the lost knowledge from all the different cultures, races, civilizations, indigenous tribes, in terms of where mathematics, and I was gifted that book early on in my teaching career. So a lot of it is luck. And, you know, it's like, okay, they're not teaching this. I mean, look at, look how rich this is, right? So uh, Crest the Peacock, uh, Mathagon, which is a free website, which I'm a content creator at. They have a beautiful uh, math history timeline that shows, and they're, they're constantly filling it up um, with all the mathematicians that you can see, uh, you know, especially uh, women mathematicians, mathematicians of color, mathematicians from the last century, uh, current mathematicians. So the students don't think that math is a dead idea. <laughs> like <laughs> math research and stuff is still going on. There's, there's about six, 700 unsolved problems in the world that nobody knows the answer to. So we always sort of think of math as a sterile thing, like it was maybe dropped by aliens in a test tube 100 years ago on a beach. <laughs> it's got a rich history and it has a rich future. So, um, and the other resource, which I would mention, these are free available, uh, amplified.com backslash math profile cards. We have 21 math profile history cards, um, which they just in initiate conversation. They give a bio, what they did. So kids get to see that mathematics was done by people that look like me, right? And that this my teacher is sharing it with me too. I'm not finding it by accident, by walking in the hallway in another teacher's class, that teacher cared enough to share this with me, but 
again, it's to me, it starts with uh, what Joe said, you know, what is your story? Start there. That is incredibly powerful. It, it reminds me, so I heard you quote Brene Brown earlier. It's yeah. the vulnerability. Like when you, oh. when you tell your story, you're being vulnerable, which is just going to help build a community of learners because we need to be risk takers. Like that's it's the easiest thing to do, yeah. to be human, to be show your vulnerability. Because once we show, we start showing, it becomes very infectious and you just want to be vulnerable everywhere. It's awesome. Can I just give a quick shout out to yeah. the timeline of mathematics on mathagon.org? That's one of the coolest things I've come across in, in <laughs> so many years. It, <clears throat> so it is it's very empowering. It's very empowering. And then having students write their own math timelines could be a really cool um, attention or addition to that in the classroom. So I love it. And it's great work. That's awesome. I hadn't thought about that idea, John. That's a great idea. That is a great idea. That's a great idea. I, don't have many, so I hope that was recorded. <laughs> you saved it for the end. Huh? Okay. I did. Like I did now drop it. Okay, dropped it at the very end. <laughs> Take us away, Mona. All right. Well, Sunil, thank you so much for joining this month's podcast. We just appreciate your time and your passion and energy for mathematics. And if you guys would like to continue this conversation, please join the Beyond the Conference in the fall or any of our networking nights that are in the spring. And we really hope to see you in Atlanta. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Thank you, Mona. Thank you, John. We hope you have been inspired by this bold mathematics leadership conversation and will tune into our podcast series each month. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and a review. You can learn more about NCSM Leadership in Mathematics Education and our upcoming professional learning events on the NCSM website at mathedleadership.org. You can also follow NCSM on Twitter at MathAdLeaders using the hashtag NCSMBold. Thanks again.